Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of notorious killers. I'm Denise, and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started. I am Denise. Hi, I'm Zelda. And we are Murderous Ruth. And welcome to the podcast. This is going to be a fun one today because I had never heard of her before you, you said, hey, here's our new topic. And my goodness, she was a colorful lady. Yes. Today we're talking about Dorothea Puente and colorful might be an understatement. Would you like me to launch on in? Yes. Let's get this started. Well, Dorothea led an exciting life before she even turned to murder most foul. (laughs) She was born Dorothea Helen Gray on January 9th, 1929 in Redlands, California, to alcoholic abusive parents who orphaned her by the time she was nine, and she spent the rest of her short childhood in an orphanage where she was sexually abused. As a 14 or 15-year-old, she made her way to Olympia, Washington, where she supported herself by hooking. In 1945, at the age of 16, she married a soldier returning from World War II, as was the fashion at the time. His name was Fred McFowl, and after knocking her up a few times, he left her. Dorothea had two daughters from this union. One she sent to relatives to care for, and the other she gave up for adoption. She later had another baby by an unknown father, whom she also gave up for adoption. By the way, one of her talents was getting married. In 1952, she married a Swede named Axel Johansson, to whom she was married for 14 years. After divorcing him in 1966, she married a man 19 years younger than she was, Roberto Puente, and that marriage lasted two years. And that's the name by which she's known, oddly enough, is her third marriage um, that only lasted two years. Now, her fourth marriage in 1976 was to Pedro Montalvo, and that only lasted a few months. Interestingly, unlike her male serial killer counterparts, she does not seem to ever have been married to more than one person at a time. So, okay, enough of her poor romantic choices. Let's get down to crying. (laughs) Throughout her life, Dorothea Puente was known to be a compulsive liar, like claiming to be the youngest of 18 children, when in reality, she was the sixth. She often pretended to be the sister of the ambassador to Sweden and told many people that she and Rita Hayworth were close friends. On the certificate for her first marriage when she was 16, Puente claimed that she was 30 and called herself Cheryl A. Rissell. Now, Dorothea's financial crimes began when she was still a teenager. She was convicted for fraudulent checks and spent six months in jail. She kept her head down for a bit after that, but soon was arrested and convicted of forgery again and spent four years in jail and then was arrested in the 1960s for managing a brothel. After her release, she was promptly arrested again, this time for vagrancy. So now this seems to be the point where Dorothea lost her shit and started committing even more serious crimes. So on the surface, she seemed a sweet, slightly pathetic, lonely woman who found work as a home health care worker, and she soon started managing boarding houses, eventually obtaining a 16-bedroom care home in Sacramento. I guess it's easier to murder people if you can collect them all in one place. This home was known as the F Street Boarding House. 
So about this time, Dorothea realizes old people are easy marks. Mm -hmm. So she starts trolling bars looking for older men who are receiving government benefits. Dorothea forged their signatures to receive money. She was caught and convicted of 34 counts of treasury fraud for which she received, get this, probation. Uh. Treasury fraud, 34 counts probation. I was like blown away. Yeah. So now the murders began shortly after Dorothea began renting out space in that home on F Street. In April 1982, 61-year-old Ruth Monroe began living with Dorothea in her upstairs apartment, but soon died from an overdose of codeine and acetaminophen. Dorothea told the police that the woman was very depressed because her husband was terminally ill. And they believed her, so they ruled the incident a suicide. A few weeks later, the police were back after 74-year-old pensioner named Malcolm McKenzie accused Dorothea of drugging and stealing from him. She was convicted of three charges of theft on August 18, 1982, and sentenced to five years in jail, where she began corresponding with a 77-year-old retiree living in Oregon named Everson Gilmouth. A pen pal friendship developed, and when Puente was released in 1985 after serving just three years of her sentence, he was waiting for her in a red 1980 Ford pickup. That's important to remember, red 1980 Ford pickup. <laughs> Their relationship developed quickly, and the couple soon was making wedding plans. Spoiler, they never got married. Now, realize, you know, this time she's in jail, she's actually still running a boarding house. And, like, all of these things are kind of happening at once. Well, in November 1985, so she's released in 1985 from prison. In November, she hires this gentleman by the name of Ismael Flores to install some wood paneling in her apartment. For his labor and an additional $800, Dorothea gave him a red 1980 Ford pickup in good condition, which she told him belonged to her boyfriend in LA who no longer needed it. She asked Flores to build a six by three by two foot box to store books and other items, quote unquote. <laughs> that would be a heavy box for just books. Exactly. And especially, you know, for storage, where, where is she going to store this? Well, then she asked Flores to transport the filled nailed shut box to a storage depot. Well, she went with him and on the way, she told him to stop and dump the box on the riverbank in an unofficial household dumping site. Dorothea told him the contents of the box were just junk. Now, if I were Mr. Flores at this point, I would be questioning, why did I make a coffin sized box that she told me had to go to storage? And then on the way to the storage unit, she decides to throw it out. This seems strange, but mm -hmm. he might have just decided that it was best not to ask too many questions. In January, a couple months later, January 1st, 1986, a fisherman spotted the box sitting about three feet from the bank of the river and informed the police. Investigators found a badly decomposed and unidentifiable body of an elderly man inside. At this point, we don't know exactly who it is, but we do know Dorothea continued to collect Everson Gilmas' pension and wrote letters to his family, explaining that the reason he had not contacted them was because he was ill. Although there's no um, indication that anyone had any contact, including Dorothea, doesn't seem to have actually had contact with Everson during any of this time. Oh, yeah. She maintained a room and board business, taking in 40 new tenants. Well, Gilmoth's body remained unidentified for three years. He was the elderly man inside the box. Mm -hmm. Well, 
Dorothea continued to accept elderly tenants and was actually popular with local social workers because she accepted the tough cases, including drug addicts and abusive tenants. She collected the tenants' monthly mail before they saw it and then paid them stipends and pocketed the rest for expenses. Now get this, during this period, parole agents, because she's on parole, right? right? She's going in, they're going and visiting her. She has been ordered as part of her parole to stay away from the elderly and refrain from handling government checks. They visited her at least 15 times at the residence and no violations were ever noted. So right there, we see a continual failure of the systems in place to prevent this exact sort of thing. Suspicion was finally aroused. <laughs> when the neighbors noted the odd activities of a homeless alcoholic known only as Chief, whom Dorothea stated she had adopted and made her personal handyman. Dorothea had Chief dig in the basement and cart soil and rubbish away in a wheelbarrow. At the time, the basement floor was covered with a concrete slab. Chief later took down the garage in the backyard and installed a fresh concrete slab there as well. Soon afterward, Chief disappeared. So then we move along to November 11th, 1988. The police inquired after the disappearance of tenant Alberto Montoya, a developmentally disabled man with schizophrenia whose social worker had reported him missing. And while she was looking for him, she discovered that that home was unlicensed. So she's been operating this place for how long with no license, nobody checking in, it was crazy. So um, anyway, the police got there and they looked around. Puente was not immediately a suspect. Um, they allowed her to leave the property, ostensibly to go buy a cup of coffee at a nearby hotel. Well, they noticed some disturbed soil on the property and then they uncovered the body of tenant Leona Carpenter, age 78. Seven bodies were eventually found on the property. Dang. Meanwhile, Dorothea, after she bought the coffee, re just ran her butt to Los Angeles where she befriended an elderly pensioner who she met in a bar. Now of this course. guy, however, was actually sharper than her previous marks. He recognized her from police reports on TV and called the authorities. So they came in and picked her up, carted her off to jail. Dorothea's preferred method of murder was to drug the victim to sleep and then suffocate them. She was charged with a total of nine murders, her boyfriend, Everson Gilmuth, and eight tenants who lived at the boarding house. Ruth Monroe, Leona Carpenter, Alvaro Montoya, Dorothy Miller, Benjamin Fink, James Gallup, Vera Mae Martin, and Betty Palmer. However, in addition to those nine people, there may have been as many as 25 murders as people came forward claiming that relatives under her care had actually gone missing. So from the time she was arrested to the time the trial started, it was five years because of various delays from Dorothea's attorneys. The trial itself lasted a year and many witnesses were called. Mental health experts testified of Dorothea's abusive upbringing and how it motivated her to help the less fortunate. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? help? Yeah, what, how are we defining the help here? At the same time, these same mental health experts agreed she had an evil side brought on by the stress of caring for her down and out tenants. I'm oh like, my. are you kidding me? So her attorneys were basically fighting to keep her from the death penalty, and they succeeded. She was convicted of three murders. They couldn't agree on the other six and was sentenced to life sentences. Now, 
lest you think she was a layabout, her time in prison was put to good use. In 1998, she began corresponding with Shane Bugby, and the result was Cooking with the Serial Killer, which included a length. <laughs> I know, right? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. It included a lengthy interview, almost 50 recipes, and various pieces of prison art sent to Bugby by Dorothea. Well, did she include poison in the recipes? That's what I want to know. I don't believe so, no. Okay. No, you have to be creative that way. Okay. Dorothea served life without parole, and she passed away in 2011 of natural causes. Until her death, she maintained her innocence of the murders. She went to a grave known as the Death House Landlady. Dang. I like yeah. that, though. Death House Landlady. That's the Everybody title of the episode. A, yeah, everybody gets a snazzy nickname when you're a serial killer. Yes, that's true. Oh, my. There, I did not know about that. <laughs> 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 oh, my gosh, that's awesome. And she couldn't profit from it either. Mm -hmm. Because of, I can't remember the name of the law, but there was a law that came about after Son of Sam that prevents um, killers from profiting. Yeah. <laughs> their murders. Mm -hmm. funny enough <laughs> <laughs> well you you shared I, i'm gonna share some of the same stuff you did um her family tree was a bit interesting and i don't go super far back because there's so much in between like you said she was born in redlands in 1929 and there was an article that came out in 11 december 1988 um by tim greve in the sacramento bee called landlady's roost stripped away and at that time, like you said, she claimed to be the youngest child of 18. Well, this is not only false, but a physical impossibility, as her parents were not old enough to have that many children by the time she was born, her mom being only 27. I have to say, when I saw, I was like, how did they fit in 18 kids? Yeah. So. <laughs> in actual fact, she was the sixth of seven children. Now, sadly, tragedy struck young for Dorothea. At the age of eight, her father died of tuberculosis, likely caused by exposure to mustard gas during World War I. Then, in December 1938, when Dorothea was nine, her mother disappeared. You heard me right, she disappeared. Now, I did not know this until I found it in the papers. Now, nobody was looking for her, as far as I can tell, but I read a very interesting article because on the 16th of January, 1939, she was located. And the Pomona Progress Bulletin on that day was the following article that said, fingerprints helped establish identity of Mrs. Trudy May Gray, 34 of Los Angeles, when she was killed in a Los Angeles traffic accident, December 11th. Police here learned today. The woman was fingerprinted here, December 4th, 1936, after an arrest on a misdemeanor charge. Los Angeles police, unable to establish her identity after her death, and General Hospital sent fingerprints to Washington, D.C., where the Department of Justice was able to refer to the Pomona record. Wow. So basically, she's gone. Kids don't know where she is, and they don't find out she's dead until the same day that it's released in the newspaper that the police find out. Wow. Right? And it was funny because there's also an article that goes more into a little bit of abuse, and I, I want to talk about that for a second because I, I found out where that came from because none of the abuse was referred to in this 1988 article. 
it came out during the sentencing phase of the trial. And one of the people who testified for her was her youngest daughter, Linda Bloom, who was given up for adoption by her in 19, and she was born in 1947. So she would have been Fred McFowell's daughter as well. And she was testifying, urging that her mom get the life sentence and not death, arguing that she had been abused. And she had actually learned the identity of her mother in 1982 and had started developing a relationship before she was arrested for murder. Now, it was her who came out and said that the father was, had a severe case of suicidal depression after World War I, which is not unheard of after for a soldier coming back from war, and that the mother was an alcoholic who ran with a motorcycle gang. Now, what's interesting is she said that her uncle, the oldest of um, Dorothea's siblings, never told her this. It was a younger sibling. Actually, not even a younger sibling. It was the child of one of her brothers. Hmm. So there was not even a firsthand account of this. So for all I know, there were more lies on this than truths. But considering that the mother was probably in this car accident, it could have been a motorcycle accident. I'm starting to think it was true yeah. <laughs> about the motorcycle gang. Now, Dorothea and her siblings were at this point orphans. All but the oldest child, who already had his own family, were scattered amongst relatives. In the 1940 census, Dorothea and youngest sibling, Ray June, were found living with the oldest child, James Glow Gray, and his wife, Louise, and daughter, Lorraine. This arrangement didn't last. Now, 1940 held another tragedy for the family when the second oldest sibling, Jesse Wilma Gray, at age 19, died very much like her mother with a motorcycle accident in Pomona on New Year's Eve, 1939, dying on the 11th of January, 1940. Oh, my. So a year after her mother died, essentially. Now, referring back to that San Francisco Bee article in 1988, an unidentified sinister who was adopted after the death of their parents said her adoptive parents wanted Dorothea, too. They wanted to adopt her as well, but she ran away. Then relatives reported that Dorothea didn't just go to an orphan's home and was there for a certain long period of time. Oh, no. She went through many homes. Oh, wow. She stayed with some relatives. She stayed at orphan's home. Um, she was at a children's home in Ontario, California when she was at one age. She was living in Napa, California with a brother at the age of 13. And she was somewhere in Los Angeles at the age of 16 going to school. So I'm sure that would cause all sorts of issues. At the age of 16, though, like you said, she made her way to Olympia. And that's when she met, like you said, Fred McFowl. They married in Reno not long after. She was 16 when they got married. He was 22. Now, I noticed some differences in the story that you put forward than from the testimony of Fred. Because in this article in 1988, the reporter interviewed Fred McFowl. Hmm. And according to Fred, the two children, one was actually raised by his mother. It wasn't sent to one of her relatives. She had nothing to do with it. Wow. Mm-hmm. And the other one was put up for adoption. Well, and that the marriage ended because she had left for a while, came back, and she was pregnant. So um, I did know that he had left her because one of the things she lied about is she was so embarrassed that he'd left her that she told people he was dead. Right. But he left her, I think, at that point. And they mm -hmm. divorced around 1948. Mm -hmm. So it's possible even that that lease 
that Linda Bloom wasn't his daughter, but could have been somebody else's because it sounds like she was still sleeping around. Now, here's something interesting I did find on McFowl. Not only had he been a soldier during World War II, but he was also a POW. Oh. He had been held by the Japanese. In a March 1943 article in the Sacramento Bee, it mentioned he had been MIA, or missing in action, since the fall of 1942. It wasn't until the Japanese released a list of POWs that they knew about his whereabouts. Wow. And as you said, she started to get arrested and then married her many husbands. Now, let me tell you a little bit about her siblings. Her oldest sibling was James Glow, as I mentioned before, and he was born in 1918. So he was 11 years older than his sister. And he and his wife seemed to have had a successful, happy life. James actually died just five years ago at the age of 96. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. His obituary was in the Verde Independent on the 21st of February, 2015, and had the following information, which I found kind of entertaining. The oldest of, of seven children, Jim was born in Beaver, Oklahoma. His parents and their children migrated along Route 66 during the Dust Bowl years to California. Their journey west paralleled that portrayed by the Joad family and the Grapes of Wrath. I like to note that they did not leave during the Dust Bowl years. Really? Yes. And we'll get more on that a little bit later, but it makes me wonder if that's what he told his children mm -hmm. and if maybe to romanticize it. I don't know, but it's not true. But he and his family were successful real estate agents in Arizona, and they also volunteered to help build churches in Belize, along the Amazon, Haiti, Portugal, and England with this church organization. And they had five children. I already mentioned the second child, who she died at 19. The third was Sylvie Geraldine, who was born in 1921. She married a man by the name of Rex D. Mount in 1941, and they had three children one of whom has had some issues with the law. His name was Mont, or not was, he's still alive. His name is Monty Ray Mount. So he would be Dorothea's nephew. Hmm. It's quite possible there are two Monty R. Mounts, but from all my digging, I really can't locate a second one. <laughs> but I say this because I did find one in Fort Collins, Colorado at one point, but I don't, I couldn't ever find him again. So I don't know if, so I want to say this um, caveat because I could be referring to a different one on this first article because there was an article in the Tucson Citizen on the 26th of August, 1989. And the article came out of Fort Collins, Colorado. And it said, bogus turtle says fraud brought him out of his shell. This man, Monty R. Mount, was lecturing at schools about his life in the 1960s rock band, The Turtles. Only, he was never a member. <laughs> he had had a fraud conviction and had 90 hours required community service to do. And this was how he was doing the community service, by going to schools and telling this tale. The lie came out when a founding member said they didn't know him. Then Monty said he was inspired to do the lie after opening for the Turtles with his band, the Patriots. No one knows if this is true. <laughs> but the member of the Turtles said, it's possible. I don't know. I don't remember that much. That's so funny. Now, funny enough, and this is why I think it's connected, it seems to be the same Monty Mount that found himself in Taos, New Mexico in 2008 where he was featured in the Taos News on the 20th of March that year, in an article by Dion 
Kaler. The article discussed how he had played with the Beach Boys and Tommy James of the Shondells. He claimed to have grown up in Newport Beach, California, and was a surfer who had a band that played the Whiskey A Go-Go and got session work. He even said that after he graduated high school in 1970, he toured with Tommy James, who came out with a solo album. Then he became a police officer, left the music altogether, and then got back into music after realizing being a police officer wasn't for him. Then he said he worked with Dean Torrance of Jan and Dean and Mike Love from the Beach Boys, even touring with them. Here's a quote from the article. Since 1989, Mount has been playing with Mike Love on and off. He even said he backed up Bo Diddley in Evergreen, Colorado. And they did this feature because he was about to be performing for Two Nights in Taos. Now there's a picture of him and he looks surprisingly like Dorothea's nephew, to me at least. But I'm not mm. an expert at the facial recognition. But there is only, I was only able to find one Monty R. Mount who ever grew up in California and graduated from high school there in 1970. And that was the nephew. According to his wedding announcement to his second wife in 1974, he was living in Pomona, attended junior college, had attended junior colleges, and was president of Associated Racing Teams of America, which I know nothing about and can find nothing on afterwards. And I can find no evidence of a musical career, but you never know. I would think if he actually had a musical career, that would be so easy to find. You would think. But then three years ago, I found him again in the Miami Herald. Hmm. He on gets around. Yes, on the 28th of April in 2007. The headline says, Charges Filed in Reported Motorcycle Con of Two. It has this picture there. And it says, A Key Largo man accused of selling vintage motorcycles that might not exist was booked on three new counts of grand theft Monday. Monty Ray Mount, 64, remains in the Monroe County Jail under bonds now totaling $25,000. He faced wow. charges and he was jailed, but I believe he's now out on probation. And that is Dorothea's nephew and looks a bit like the picture from the Taos article. Wow. Mm-hmm. But I'd like to say they might be completely different Montes, but it's it an unusual that, name. Well, it seems that lying runs in the family. Exactly. Because at the very least, he's lying, doing cons. And apparently, according to the article, this wasn't his first time pulling a con, selling motorcycles. Wow. Um, the last of the siblings are Jesse Everett. He died at the age of 50 in 1973, and two others who are still currently living, one in Florida. Now, let's go to the father of Dorothea. He was known as Sergeant Jesse James Gray. He was born in November 1894 in Dexter, Missouri, which is in Stoddard County, an area near the Boot Heel, and a place you are familiar with, right, Zelda? Oh, yes. Yeah, I've been to that area quite a bit. Does it bother you how many of our serial killers are associated with Missouri? Because I'm starting to get a little, you know, uneasy about the fact I still have family there. <laughs> Maybe we should start focusing on all the serial killers from California. <laughs> yeah. Or Florida, because we expect it from Florida. Yes. But no, <laughs> they all seem to have started in Missouri at some point. Their families have moved west. <laughs> so I hate to say it, it's not too surprising. <laughs> and I love St. Louis people, so... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, please don't come find us, Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> so how would you describe the Boot Heel area? Um, it's very rural. Um, I imagine at that time, especially, it wasn't particularly well-developed. Mm -hmm. And very religious. Very, it's very much Bible-thumper territory. Being a Catholic, when I'd go down there, 
kind of kept quiet about it, which is weird because it had been very Catholic. And then it just kind of, you know, Arkansas, I guess, had some influence. Yeah, people just moved out of the area. I would think it would head started Catholic because of the French when mm-hmm. they first settled the area. Yeah, it's beautiful, though. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a really pretty part of the country. I haven't been there. I'll have to try to get down to that part someday. I've been in the Ozarks, but not in the Boot Hill part. Mm. Now, Jesse James was one of seven children, five girls and two boys. Bad fortune came early when both of his parents died around 1905. He was only 10 or 11 at the time, an orphan like his children would be. Mm. Then on the 8th of February, 1918 in Haskell, Oklahoma, he married Trudy May Yates. Two weeks later, he enlisted in the U.S. Army to serve in World War I. He ended his time in the military as a sergeant on the 25th of July, 1919 at Camp Funston in Kansas, which is near Fort Riley. Interestingly enough, Jesse and Trudy's first child, James, was born in March 1918. So let's go to the math here again. He gets married on the 8th of February that year. He enlists two weeks later. And a week after he enlists, week, maybe two weeks, his first child is born. Mm-hmm. So do with that what you will. Well, somebody definitely needed a steady paycheck. Yes. So I would imagine that was part of the motivation of signing up for the military. Unfortunately for him, like it was said before, he was apparently exposed to mustard gas, struggled with PTSD afterwards. So Dorothea's grandfather, Jesse's father, was Thomas Jefferson Gray. He was born in 1861 in Alabama. I believe it was Jackson County. He was the second child of James G. Gray and Elizabeth Starkey. Sadly, like his children and grandchildren, Thomas was an orphan. According to will records, James died around 1871. His mother married, after he died, a George W. Kelly in February 1874. They had one child together, Andrew, in 1875. And this likely, this is when Elizabeth died, leaving seven children behind. So at this point, he would have been 14, maybe. He had had his birthday. And I just have been noticing a huge pattern in this family of orphans. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to say that it does seem to run in this family, early deaths, being orphaned, being raised by relatives or in orphanages. Mm-hmm. And I just find that so remarkable that there's just like such a history within one family. Yeah. And yeah, I've noticed a lot of different patterns with families when I'm doing my own tree, like my father's side, nobody could sit still longer than one generation. They always had to keep moving. Whereas mm-hmm. my mom's side was, oh, let's plant those roots and stay there forever. Mm-hmm. But not, not this type of pattern. Right. I mean, I've seen a pattern of divorces before, mm-hmm. but patterns of dying mm-hmm. and orphans. Yeah. Um, sometime between Andrew's birth and the 1880 census, the family moved to Stoddard County, Missouri which is in the boot heel that we had discussed earlier. Thomas married Mary E. Boback on the 17th of October, 1882, at her home in Pike, Missouri. Now, I've got to be honest, I am very stuck on Mary. Hmm. It could be the spelling, because it's spelled so many different ways. Um, It's spelled B-O-W-B-A-C-K. It's spelled B-O-E-B-A-C. And that's just two of the spellings. On each one of her children's death certificates, it's spelled a little different. I have tried all the spellings. I have tried to look for a Mary living in that part of Missouri in 1880. I'm I'm stuck. 
<laughs> so what I can say though is that she was born in 1860, August 1863 in Missouri according to the 1900 census. Between 1900 and 1902, the family headed west, settling in Stigler, Oklahoma. Both Thomas and Mary would die before the next census in 1910. I've seen some other family trees suggesting they died in early 1905 in Missouri City, Texas. But other than the date, this makes little to no sense to me, as Missouri City is near Houston, mm -hmm. nowhere near Stigler, and nowhere near yeah. Missouri. <laughs> and the children remained in Oklahoma. I, I, it doesn't make much sense to me, because I would think if they had died there, the children would have stayed in Texas. Yeah. I mean, I could see it if, yeah. they had been, if it had been up in the panhandle of Texas. Mm -hmm. That would make a little bit more sense. So it's possible. I, but I need to, but there's no documentation where people are coming up with this information. Yeah, I, I have relatives in Missouri City, and um, yeah, it, I can confirm it's nowhere near Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah, and since I've seen no, no clear evidence of their deaths or anything, I'm going to just say that's what other people have said, but I don't know that I trust it fully, um, although I did look. Are they vampires? Mm, mm. Mm, it's possible. It's more likely, they, wherever they died, they just weren't really good at taking records on deaths at that time. That's more likely than vampires? Yeah. How weird. I know. Huh. It's a bummer, though. <laughs> kind of like Buffy vampires, you know. Yeah. <laughs> what I do know is that once they died, the great children were separated, living with neighbors as well as family that were also in Oklahoma at that time. In fact, Jesse James Gray lived with John Shropshire family. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute because I want to talk to you about his siblings really quick. About Jesse James? Jesse siblings? James's siblings. Okay. Yes. So these would be the aunts and uncles of Dorothea Puente. Okay. His oldest sister, the oldest child, was Elizabeth Jane or Lizzie. And she married Jess A. Johnson in 1901 and had three children. They came to California between 1910 and 1920. Then sometime after that, and by 1930, Jesse Johnson was an inmate at Patton State Hospital for the Insane. Patton State Hospital is known as a forensic psychiatric hospital and has had, like Betty Page, had a brief stay there once upon mm -hmm. a time. I have no idea why he was there. I could not find an article to say what had happened. Jesse Johnson is not exactly an uncommon name. Right. There were a few with legal problems during that time, but I don't know which, if any of those were him. Wow. Now, I do know he died in 1948 in Stanislaus, California. I suspect he was transferred to a different facility and he died as an inmate. Okay. His wife never remarried. The second of Jesse's siblings was Huldy, or maybe Hilda, was spelled a couple different ways. She married Lafayette Shropshire or I've also seen his name as Fayette Shropshire, in 1905, the same year that her parents probably died. Sadly, she died two years later in 1907, likely during childbirth or soon after the birth of their son, Roscoe. Mm. One of the other children was, so there's several children, seven children. Um, number six was Clarence. He was born in 1898 and he had legal trouble but nothing that lasted. So he was arrested for some peace disturbance and cleared on another charge. He never stayed in jail long and it was a short time period of that. And then we have Mary who was born in 1903, the youngest of the bunch. And she married a man by the name of Luke Ford Smith in 1923 and died 12 years later 
at the age of 32. Wow. So lots of early deaths in this family. Yeah, and lots of prison time. Yes. Other siblings were Ida and Clara, the latter who lived a long life, dying at the age of 94. Now that I have that out, like I said, after the parents died, the children were separated living with neighbors, right? Well, Jesse James was living with John Shropshire family, who were the in-laws of his sister, Huldy. Huldy had already died, but they took in her brother. Wow. His brother-in-law was there as well. I thought that was kind of interesting that they took him in, even though um, she had passed away. Well, that was nice. Mm-hmm. I think people looked out for their neighbors a little bit more in different mm-hmm. ways back then. And you didn't have the social services that you do now. True. I mean, it was pretty easy to get a kid, you know, yeah. like you, there was, there was never, I, I mean, when was it when we started having social service agencies make sure children weren't being, you know, abused and swept away? That was until like the forties or fifties. Right. And the system's not clearly not perfect now, but I would still say it's probably better than it was then. Oh, for sure. Um, the youngest, Mary, lived with her older sister's family. So they were all kind of scattered in the same general area. By 1920, it seems that most, if not all, of Jesse's siblings continued west, all settling around Pomona, California. Now, I kept asking myself this question regarding why would the family move to Oklahoma from Missouri in the first place? I will grant you that Missouri is not like an Eden It's a very pretty area with a lot of good farmland. You look like you want to say something. Well, it feels to me they may have been one step ahead of the sheriff. (laughs) You know, that's a possibility. But my guess is they had to do with land and farming. Because before the Dust Bowl did happen, Oklahoma had some great farmland. And I noticed in the newspapers, in the area at the time in Missouri, there were people advertising saying, come to Oklahoma. And where the family first settled was in Indian Territory. More specifically, I believe it was Choctaw land. Okay. There was a Homestead Act passed in 1862, and it meant that non-Native people, black or white, could obtain 160 acres of government land and stake a claim. Often this land was Indian land that the U.S. government had taken away from the Indians. Mm -hmm. By 1866, eligibility included Blacks, women, and immigrants. So it's all-inclusive, which I found that pretty interesting, considering that women didn't have any rights. Mm -hmm. Blacks had some at that time. They would get more limited as time went on for a period. Well, and I'm assuming that for women, it was unmarried women, not married women. Hmm. Yeah, I would assume that as well. Unmarried, it could be widowed, mm-hmm. potentially single, although I don't know how likely that was back then. Mm-hmm. In 1889, President Benjamin Harrison signed legislation opening up 2 million acres in Oklahoma Territory, and it started the first land run. Now, some people cheated on this land run. You were all supposed to, it was like a race. You were supposed to start on the day it opened up and race and go grab your land, some people decided to head out there early and stake their claim ahead of time before the land run started. Isn't that where Boomer Sooner comes from? With exactly. the of Oklahoma? Yep. That's what the Sooners were. Mm-hmm. So basically, wait, this college chose people who cheated as their mascots. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Wow. 
well, I have <laughs> much less respect for University of Oklahoma than I did before, which granted was not very high anyway. So. Well, and I, I've never been a big Oklahoma Sooner fan, but that's because I went to the University of Kansas. Woohoo, go Jayhawks. Same conference. And Jayhawks come from a really good name. We can get to another time about where Jayhawks came from. I, I went to Purdue, so it's go Boilers for me. <laughs> You'll have to explain that sometime to me, but not now. <laughs> Um, in 1901, and this is the time that they're heading to Oklahoma, the Kiowa, Comanche, Apache, Wichita, Caddo reservations, I think it was like all one group of reservations, were allotted. The surplus lands were given out to non-Indian settlers by lottery. Now, I got a lot of this information from the Oklahoma Historical Society as well as Wikipedia. Oklahoma became a state in 1907, so when the family moved there, it was a lot of Indian territory. So like I said before, Thomas Jefferson and Mary Gray moved to Oklahoma between 1900 at the time of the census and 1902 at the birth of their youngest child, Mary. Now, also according to Wikipedia, coal mining created some jobs in Haskell County where the family lived. Hmm. The mining drew in railroad construction, creating even more jobs. But why move from Oklahoma to California? Mm -hmm. I could see weighing a change after the family, the parents died, and the children weighing new opportunities. But what was it about California, especially because this was a prosperous time for Oklahoma? Yeah. You know, in the 1920s, farmers were prospering because the food prices were higher. Oil fields were still opening up. Lots of liquid gold out there. So I, I, I wasn't sure. Again, I had to do a deep dive to figure out why. Because yeah. I find this stuff fascinating. What'd you find out? Well, I'll tell you a second. But before I do, I do want to emphasize, because we mentioned James Glow Gray's um, obituary before, where he said they came out like the family and the Grapes of Wrath during the Dust Bowl from Oklahoma. But they didn't, because they all left by 1926. The Dust Bowl, didn't start until 1930. It lasted until 1939. Oh. Hmm. And it was, the Dust Bowl was caused, and I, I saw this um, documentary, great documentary by Ken Burns, because that's all he does is good documentaries, called The Dust Bowl. And he really got into how the Dust Bowl came about, and it was all that prosperous, wonderful land they were farming. Mm-hmm. They farmed it to the point that it created dust. They weren't irrigating it properly. They weren't rotating the crops and doing the things. They were using it up. Mm -hmm. So it seems that the desire to leave was probably because of California itself. And I did not realize that this, at this at the time. I knew that a lot of people moved out there when the gold rush happened. And I knew, I know a lot of people, especially from Oklahoma, moved out after the Dust Bowl. So what was going on? Well, from 1900 to 1910, the population in California increased by 60%. Wow. In 1910 to 1920, 44%. Wow. And then from 1920 to 1930, 66%. Wow. So it almost tripled in size in 30 years. Yes. So it was like a wow. big push. A lot of people, everybody was moving to California. So it looks like some of the initial draw might have been related to new jobs. Then you have World War I starting up, and there's manufacturing jobs mm -hmm. for the war effort. Mm -hmm. 
but there was also construction going on for roads out there, construction of aqueducts to provide water to Southern California. There was a lot of work, a lot yeah. of opportunity. Well, and, you know, they were discovering oil left and right all over yeah. California. But I, I do think it's interesting how much investment went into the military industrial complex in California in those early years, mm -hmm. because it wasn't just the manufacturing to produce for the wars, but they also had military bases there. And as things began to heat up in Asia, then they really started investing in California for that. So that's a lot of big growth, I think, can be attributed to that as well. Yeah, because I know it grew again after the next, after the Dust Bowl happened. Mm -hmm. There was a big jump between 1930 and 1940, and then we had that war effort going on for World War II, it, it jumped mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. Now, Jesse's family was likely one of the last of, of his family, of his siblings, to arrive in California. It was between 1923 and 1926. That's based on the births of his children. Mm -hmm. His sister, Clara Anna, was likely the first to move out there because she got married to a man by the name of James Orion Peters, who went by the name Orn, huh. in Blaine, Oklahoma in 1910. They resided in Pomona by 1914. Hmm. That's a pretty so area. That might have drawn them as well. For whatever reason, Orn wanted to go west, brought his wife and their family with them. They get there, they settle. She sends letters going, come out here. This is the land of plenty. This mm -hmm. is the way, because they all seem to have settled in Pomona. Mm -hmm. Okay, now we're going to continue up the gray line and let's do a quick review. It's so confusing after a while. So we have Dorothea. Her father was Jesse James Gray. Her grandfather was Thomas Jefferson Gray. And her great-grandfather was James G. Gray. Now we're on to her great-great-grandfather, William Gray. He was born around 1793 in South Carolina. He married Mary, 11 years his junior. Mary was from Virginia, and they got married in around 1828 in Alabama. They had at least nine children, with James as the oldest. Let's go back to James and the great-grandfather. His wife was Elizabeth Starkey. She was the fifth child of 12 to Jesse Starkey and Polly. I don't know Polly's maiden name. She was born in around 1838. Her 11 siblings in order were George, John, Gideon, Mary Jane, Jesse Jr., Margaret, Nancy, Rhoda, James, Thomas, and Sarah. But oh my gosh. Now, Elizabeth's father died between 1860 and 1870. He would have been between 40 and 50 years old. And their youngest child, Sarah, would have been between 6 and 16. And I know he died that time because of the census. Okay. And nothing more than that. So now let's move over to the maternal side of Dorothea's family. On the maternal side, Dorothea's mother was Trudy May Yates. She was the only child born to William J. Yates and Willie E. Hill on the 4th of March, 1901 a year to the day that they were married, so on their first wedding anniversary. Now, Trudy was born on what was considered Choctaw land, which we now call Oklahoma. Sometime between her birth and April 1903, her father, William, died. Her mother, Willie, would then marry Daniel Clement Vaughn on April 1903. Mm. Together, they had six children. Let me try that again. This family, like the Grays, made their way to California and were likely some of the same family helping Dorothea and her siblings after their parents died. 
Okay. Particularly Trudy's sister, Alice Adele, who went by Peggy, of all things, <laughs> um, who married Jack Sharp. And on the webpage, I'm going to have a picture of them. Oh, nice. Um, I have a picture of Alice, Jack, Jesse, and Trudy. Nice. It's kind of a fun picture. William J. Yates was born in Texas in October 1876 to Joseph Yates and Sarah Tennessee Mason, the oldest of six siblings. And I believe Joseph, well, not even believe, I know that Joseph served in the Civil War on the, for the Confederacy through Arkansas. I know this for a fact. Now, I believe Joseph served in the Confederacy with the Arkansas 12th Battalion Sharpshooters, Company 6. I'm not positive because Joseph Yates was surprisingly a common name. Now, he was Joseph J. Yates and often went by J.J. So based on that, that's where I believe he served. That and the fact that I knew he had been in the Confederacy because of something I'll mention here in a minute. If this was him, though, with the 12th Battalion Sharpshooters, then he was a POW at one point held in Alton, Illinois. He was captured on the 1st of May, 1863, spent some time in Alton, and then exchanged for a Union soldier on the 12th of June. Wow. Yeah. And we're going to share a picture of where he was probably held in Alton, Illinois, because that location still exists in some form, correct? I'm pretty sure it does. I think so, too. Um, Joseph and his wife ended up settling in Texas after the war. He died in 1898, but I'm not sure where. It was either in Texas or Oklahoma. The location is unknown, but I know he died then because his wife received an Arkansas Confederacy pension where the date was mentioned, but not the location. Now, Joseph was the son of, of Ben and Anna and the oldest of at least five. Nothing more is known about his family. Now we're going to go to his wife, Sarah Tennessee Mason, Dorothea's great-grandmother. She was born in 1842, the fourth of nine children, to Thomas Prescott Mason of Georgia and Mary Gilly. And you'll never guess where Sarah was born. Alton, Illinois? <laughs> that would be a shock, actually. <laughs> As her name gives away, Tennessee. <laughs> there are around that time and before you see a lot of people with the name Tennessee back mm -hmm. in the day mm -hmm. and she ended up having her and Joseph had a son and they named him Tennessee hmm. I had a girl in grade school who uh, a friend her name was Tawana she Ooh, was I like that. she was conceived in Tijuana oh <laughs> that's hysterical but I like the name it is really pretty isn't it yeah, and I actually kind of like Tennessee, and I have a grandmother, great, great, I, I don't know if she's my second grade or third grade, but named Missouri. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fun. So, there's a lot of people, it's funny, when you go through the old census, there's censuses, there's a lot of people who are named after the states. I think one of the only ones that really stuck and keeps being named is Virginia. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Dakota, maybe. Yeah, there aren't a ton of Washingtons anymore. Mm -mm. And you notice we already had a Thomas Jefferson mentioned. I mean, a lot of people like to name their kids after presidents as well. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, I have a Benjamin Franklin in my family. So we're going to go over to Willie Hill Yates Vaughn, Dorothea's grandmother. She was the daughter of Henderson Hill, 
and Ella Hanks. She was born in 1880 in Lavaca, Arkansas. She outlived both of her husbands. If you remember, her first husband, Trudy's father, died when she was just a baby. And then she married her second husband. And he died in 1927 at the age of 60 in Oklahoma. Willie passed away 20 years later at the age of 67 in Fresno, California. And my guess is she likely moved to California to be closer to her children after Daniel died. Because I believe they were all over there already. And I believe she also might have helped some of her grandchildren when their parents died, Jesse and Oh, wow. Good. Now the line goes next from Henderson to James Hill and Mary Catherine Newman. They were from Virginia, but moved west to sell in Arkansas by 1863 when their 12th and last child was born. Ella Hanks Hill, great-grandmother to Dorothea, was born in Illinois to Stiles Hanks and Lydia. And they were born, I believe she was born not far from where I'm at, down around Springfield, Illinois area. Um, Stiles and Lydia likely married in Illinois around 1850. Stiles was originally from Ohio and Lydia from Virginia. And that is the family tree of Dorothea, Helen, Gray, McFowell, Johansson, Puente, Montalvo. <sighs> wow, that was fascinating. Yeah, I, I just have so much fun digging into these. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to throw this out here for anybody who's listening. I would love to hear from anyone who discovers that they're related to anybody we discuss on the podcast. Like, if you never knew that, you're related and you're listening going, oh my goodness, <laughs> please let us know because that, that would make my day. But we can read those types of letters or something at some point. Mm-hmm. And fun. next coming up is going to be a fun one. It's, it might be a long one too because, oh my gosh, it goes deep. We're going to be digging into Jim Jones of Jonestown. Wow. The original, he drank the Kool-Aid person. Yes. In fact, nobody said did you drink the Kool-Aid before him? Exactly. Which is wild when you think about it. But I've learned some interesting things about him that I didn't know about. So I'm kind of looking forward to us having that conversation. I can't wait. This is going to be so much fun. you so much for joining us on Murderous Roots, where murder and family meet. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and please leave us a review. You can find more information on this episode and others at MurderousRoots.com. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, you can email us at podcast at MurderousRoots.com.